I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Well, we uh, begin tonight um, what is the, uh, the really, if we were doing theology here in a classroom, we're doing the formal study of theology beginning tonight. Prior to tonight, we've been laying the groundwork, laying the foundation uh, for this formal study, and the formal study begins with the doctrine of God. Who is God? That's the question, who is God? Not who is God to you, and not who is God to me, but who is God as he has made known to us in the Bible? The question is not, what do you think about God? The question is, who is God and how is the mind of God made known to us? Can we know the mind of God? And the answer is, if the Bible is true, we can know the mind of God to the extent that God wants us to know his mind. We do know, according to Scripture, his thoughts are not our thoughts. So if we're going to understand anything about God, we cannot begin with our own thoughts. We can't begin with our thinking about God and lift them up to God and make God into a bigger version of what we think about God because Isaiah makes it clear his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. We have to begin with God and the way that God has chosen to make himself known to us. So here's what we're going to do uh, tonight. We're going to address, first of all, the question, how do we talk about God? When we talk about God, uh, how do we go about talking about God? And then uh, in the end of our time, about halfway through, we're going to shift to talk about what is very fundamental for any talk we do about God, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no understanding of God in terms of who God is apart from uh, at least understanding uh, how the Trinity operates in Scripture and how the Trinity is operated in the uh, traditions of the church throughout the centuries. Uh, next Sunday night, uh, one of my favorite things to talk about are the attributes of God. To talk about God means we talk about his attributes. God has a number of attributes. Uh, we are familiar with those. We just talk about them in ways that we don't categorize them as attributes. So we're going to talk next week about the attributes of God. Uh, then on the uh, third week, uh, whatever Sunday night that is, uh, we're going to talk about the will of God. How does the Bible talk to us about the will of God? We like to talk about knowing the will of God. How can I know the will of God? Well, that is a secondary question. That's not a primary question. The primary question is, how does God make his will known to us? 
There's no, there's no need to talk about knowing God's will until we can know biblically uh, how God reveals his will to us. And in that context, uh, we're going to talk about providence. What is providence and how does providence work uh, in, in the world and in our lives? Uh, in about... <laughs> Uh, we won't, uh, I won't get this book in time except to look at it and hold it and admire it. But um, uh, in about uh, the next two to three weeks, uh, John Piper is releasing his newest book. It is a 700-page treatment of Providence. And so if it comes out before then, I'll let you know so you can get it and read it before we do that session that night. And then the fourth week, uh, we're going to, in, in our study of the doctrine of God, who is God, we're going to talk about angels and demons and talk about uh, creation. Uh, to believe in God and to acknowledge that God is, is to acknowledge that the most real world is the world we cannot see. Uh, one of the great deceptions of the devil in our world is to get, even us as believers, it's to get us to thinking about the world in which you and I live right now, what we can taste, what we hear, what we see, what we touch, what we feel, that this is the real world. Uh, this is a, the world in which we live that is totally temporary. Nothing in this world is going to last. And so the real world is not the physical and the material. Now, th that can be deceiving, right? Because we are prone to live, if you, if you watch us, <laughs> we're prone to live like the physical and material world has ultimate meaning. When ultimately it has no real meaning at all in the light of what is real. What is real is spiritual. What is real is what we cannot see, and that real world over which God rules as sovereign is occupied by spiritual beings, and those spiritual beings are known to us as angels and demons. The truth is, we can know exactly and precisely what the Bible teaches about angels and demons. Our problem is that we often want to know more than the Bible teaches. And whenever we go beyond what the Bible teaches on any subject, we are in the realm of danger. And we're walking on the edge of heresy. Uh, heresies are nothing but the truth of God contorted and twisted to our own liking. And so when we deal in the realm of heresy, we're dealing in the realm of truth that reaches outside what the Bible teaches. So we're going to look at the spiritual world, the realm of angels and demons, and that leads us naturally and finally uh, to look at, at creation, that to see what creation is and what creation means to God and uh, how God went about, according to Scripture, uh, creating the world. So tonight, how do we talk about God and taking us toward the foundational doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity? So let us pray. 
Father, when we, when we pray, we lift up our hearts to you. And when we pray, we must have some sense of the you to whom we lift up our hearts. Who are you? What does it mean when we call you God? What does it mean when we call you God in all the various ways that the Bible calls you God? Even your name in the Bible is not a term that's spoken always in the singular. It's most often spoken in the plural. Not that there are many gods, but that you are so great and so glorious. You are so far beyond our ability to reach. We in our feeble minds cannot conceptualize who you are, so when we speak of you and call you God, we are actually using a word that is plural. Because it is that kind of word alone that can capture your majesty, your beauty, your magnificence, your transcendence, your holiness. It is only, God, when we see how far above us you are that we can begin to have any sense of what it means that you have come to us. If we could have, even tonight, some glimpse of how really glorious you are and then think that you have come to us to save us and that even this night as we gather here, you are among us, we would shudder. And before we could speak a single syllable that made any sense, we would stutter and stammer in your presence. And yet, God, you have, you have come to us. And you have come to us not for any reason related to us. You have come to us out of the freedom and wonder of your coming to save a people for yourself. God, along the way during these few weeks when we talk about who you are, give us humility before you and cause us to be refrained in our speech. Cause us to be able to say what we must say so many times when we talk about you, even from your word, we must say, I don't know, because there's so much that we don't know. Now, there's enough that we know, but there's so much that we don't know about who you are and how you work, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us during these times to learn how to trust you more and to love you more and to rest in you, to know about the largest most vast, most incomprehensible being in the whole universe, to know about you, that you know everything about every one of us in this room. 
You know our past. You know our present. You know our future. You know every detail of every life. And you look upon every one of us. And you extend your arms out to us in the shape of the cross. And you say to us, I love you. That's how big you are. And that's how much, because of that, we want to know you as fully as we can. And we want to embrace you and we want to be embraced by you. So help us to bring our best thoughts and our best motives and our best longings to learn more and more of what we want to know about who you are as God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get started. We want to know God. God wants to be known. That's where we begin. Just some introductory things that uh, other people have said. R.C. Sproul says, every other doctrine is tied to the knowledge of God. If we're wrong about who God is, we will be wrong about everything else. J.I. Packer, one of the leading biblical scholars, theologians who died in 2020, uh, wrote, knowing God is the supreme goal of every child of God. But the question is, who is this God? And how do we know? How do we know for sure that we know him? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who was longtime pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, James Boyce was uh, one of the leading thinkers, one of the leading preachers in our country, who one Sunday, as he was preaching, began to feel ill. And uh, he continued to feel ill. He went on Monday to the doctor. He was diagnosed with a massive uh, metastatic cancer and within two weeks was dead. And it was quite a shock to uh, people all over the conservative evangelical world because of the massive importance that he had in the lives of people. James Boyce writes, All humans have an innate awareness of God, but only a very few humans ever actually know God. So God has made us so that we are born with this innate awareness that there is a God. There is no human being anywhere in the world that does not have, by God's design, some awareness in them that there is a God, and yet beyond that, they know little about who this God is. Uh, To speak of God is to speak first and foremost of his incomprehensibility. You can't go far in talking about God unless you begin there. God is beyond the reach of our knowing fully and finally, except as he makes himself known. Truth is, we can know God. Truth is that you can never know God on your own terms. You and I do not set the terms for knowing God. 
We know God only as he makes himself known, and God never, by his choice, never makes himself known totally or exhaustively. That's why when somebody asks me, what do you think we're going to do in heaven before we get to live in the new heaven and the earth, new earth, uh, heaven is the first stop along the way of living forever on the new earth and new heaven that God prepares only for his people. The center of the new heaven and earth will be the worship of God and the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we going to do in heaven until we get there? I think we're, at least one thing we're going to do is keep learning about God. Keep, keep gaining knowledge. God is so vast and huge and wonderful and powerful that even when we get to heaven, there's so much about him that we will learn even as we are worshiping him in his presence as he sits upon the throne with the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. Uh, there is a saying uh, that goes way, way back uh, in time and history uh, about the knowledge of God. Uh, it is a Latin phrase. I started to write it down here and say it, but that would have been ugly because of my Latin being so bad. The finite can never contain, capture, or control the infinite. You and I are not infinite. We are finite. We are locked into time. There was a time when you were not. There will be a time when you will be no more. On your tombstone, there will be a birth date. There will be a death date. You, you are locked in as a human being to the finite boundaries of the time in which, ordained, in which God ordained that you live. God is not locked into time. God created time for our benefit. God doesn't need time. God dwells outside time, over time, above time, beyond time. Uh, time is something he created uh, for those of us who are finite beings. And we as finite beings, we can't contain God, we can't capture God, we can't control God. God is infinite in all that it means to be infinite. So we are, we are by nature from birth fleshly beings. So we can't grasp completely or totally ever who God is in terms of his essence because God is not a fleshly being. God is spirit. Jesus teaches us this in John 4. Now what this means is that in order for God to communicate with us, if God communicated to you and I as God, he communicated to us as the eternal, infinite, outside of time, totally transcendent being that he is. If God communicated with us that way, if he used God talk, what would you and I say? Say what? We would scratch our heads. We would wag our heads because God is so far above us, beyond us, in order to communicate with us. And this is how much he loves us. He condescends to come to us and to communicate with us in the only ways that we can know him. Now just think about this. God chooses 
to use our language that he created for us to use in order to communicate to us. Where did language come from? God. All the languages of the world are ultimately, or ultimately find their origin in God. And God uses the languages of the world that he gave to us to communicate to us about who he is. John Calvin said he lisps. He speaks to us in ways that we can know everything that he wants us to know. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you still have questions about who God is and how God works. And you may live, probably will live all of your life and never get answers to those questions. So why do you keep asking them? The truth of the matter is that God reveals in his word about himself everything that we need to know. So rather than asking those inanswerable questions that God is not going to answer because he's chosen not to answer because we don't need to know them in order to know him and serve him, we need to dig into God's word and listen to who God is as God reveals himself to us. You and I are, well, we're multidimensional beings. We are soul. At the very least, we're soul and body. Soul is that which is spiritual, that which belongs to God. Body is diminishing. We are souls that are housed within a body. God is not multidimensional. God is spirit. God is not flesh. God is not body. Uh, God is very different than we are. So, I want you to put your thinking caps on here for just a few moments because we have different ways of speaking about God and we use different, uh, different language when we talk about God and we need to know this. So how are we going to talk about God? God gives us the language, the human language, to talk about him, but even the language we use is limited. It can't reach high enough to capture God, to control God, or to contain God. So how are we going to talk about God? Three ways. Number one, we're going to talk about God by way of negation. We say what he is not. He is not finite. He does not change. That's what the word immutable means. God does not change. God is always the same. The Bible says God is not man. So he does not change. He does not lie. There are, some, there are many things that we can say about God by way of negation. We can say what he is not. He is not like us. He is above us and beyond us. We cannot capture him or contain him in the terms that we use. The second way we talk about God is by the way of exalted language. We take our human language, we elevate it to an exalted extent. So we say these kinds of things about God. God is omnipotent. What does that mean? He, he's all-powerful. He is the only being in the universe that has all power to do whatever pleases him. That's exalted language. 
God can do and will do whatever he wills to do. There is nothing that can restrain what God has willed to do. God is omniscient. That means that he has all knowledge. Now, when you say that God is omnipotent, you're saying that he has all power, and if your deduction from that, he has all power, so God will do in his power whatever I ask him to do. You've imposed on God a standard that God will not accept because God has never accepted that standard. God is all-powerful to do what God wills to do. And only what God wills to do. And what God wills to do pleases him and exalts the glory of his name. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And this is where you and I get into trouble as human beings, particularly. Now, I want you to think about this with me, particularly if you live in the context of the Western world and particularly if you live in the United States of America. We love saying God is omniscient until we have to mean it. Omniscience means that there is nothing that God does not know and there is no time when he does not know it. There's nothing that he does not know and there is no time that he does not know it. God knows everything about everyone from before the beginning of time. That's omniscience. Now, omniscience means that if God knows all things, then God, out of his omniscience, rules all things, and that he has a purpose in ruling all things. He has a purpose in knowing everything. As Isaiah says, God knows the end, that is, the end from the beginning. Now, you can take that at multiple levels. God knows the beginning of Joan Porther's life. He knew when she would come to birth, the very moment. He knows the day of her death. He knows everything in between. He's sovereign over all those things, every step along the way. That's why Solomon can say something like this. We make our plans, and we should, but who orders our steps? God. Now, that either disturbs you or comforts you. And there are many, I believe, many American professing Christians who, for whom that is disturbing. Because I, I want to vote in what happens in my life. I want a voice. Well, we do have that. We're going to talk about that. But to say that God is omniscient as we're talking about God is to say he knows all things He knows all circumstances. He knows all conditions. He's omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere at the same time. We can't be that, but God can. He's omnisapient. It means he's all wise. All wisdom rests in God. Colossians 1.18. Do y'all know Colossians 1.18? Do y'all know what Colossians 1.18 is? It's our memory verse. Crickets. Who knows it that can say it? (laughs) That's a teacher. And he is the head 
of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, in everything, the translation we're using, in all things, he might, the translation says, be preeminent, that he might have preeminence. He is all-wise. God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, rules and reigns over all the most exalted being in the universe. So we speak by way of negation. We say what God isn't. We speak by way of eminence. We use exalted language Thirdly, we speak by way of affirmation. We affirm truths about God that are documented in Scripture, and we stand upon them. And here are some of them. He is one. God is one God. We are monotheist. We believe in one God. He is holy. The essence of the word holy is that He is exalted above and beyond us. He is sovereign. He created the world for himself, and it is his world, and he rules over the world for the praise of his name and the accomplishment of his purposes. Do you and I understand, and I don't mean this critically, I just I want to make sure we understand this. Do you and I understand that when we talk about God and who God is biblically, one of the things we see is that, that God so works in the world so that everything in the world is from him, it is for him, it is about him, and it is for the praise of his name. Now, if that's true, the world can't be about God and be about me at the same time. Do you see that? It's one of our greatest conflicts in our culture, one of the greatest conflicts we have, because we want a God who is all about us. That, that, that sounds harsh when it's said, but when you think about what we focus on in our lives, we focus on what is about us and our concerns in relationship to God, rather than just resting in the goodness and the graciousness and the greatness and the glory of God. Now, there are different ways that we speak when we use human language, and uh, we need to be aware that when we talk about God, there are one of these that is most important, and the others we may use, but we must be aware when we're using them of their limitations, so... One way of speaking about God is univocal or univocal. That means that when we use a word, we take our understanding of the meaning of that word and we impose it on God. I'm telling you, that is dangerous if we know we're doing that. You take, you could make your own list here, but take the word good, okay? So you say that you have a dog at your house, or four. And you say about your dog, your dog is good. Now I hope when you say your dog is good and you say God is good, you don't even remain the same things remotely. 
right? If you use univocal language, though, here's what happens. Here's the danger. We can begin to use the word good, and we can load it up with our understanding of good. What if when I think about good, what is good, I think about what is good for me? Now, is that finite thinking or is that infinite thinking? Is that human thinking or is that God thinking? Is that thinking within the framework of time or thinking within the framework of eternity? You see? So if I'm thinking of what is good in terms of my situation and my circumstances, what is good in any situation and circumstance I'm in or you're in is always limited. Now, what happens when you're praying for God to do what is good, but in your mind you have determined what good is, and it doesn't happen? What happens? You've painted yourself into a corner. Uh, You've got to say either that God does not do what is good, or you've got to say that God refused to answer your prayers. Or maybe you say, you know, I'm using language that is so limited that I don't really even know what good is. You can't compare what we see as human good to what is good as defined by God. Or take the word love. Even when we use the word love at an exalted level, a husband saying to his wife, I love you. A wife saying to her husband, I love you. That's an exalted use of the term love. But even that level of love cannot reach to the level of love that is embodied in God and that is expressed toward us. Because God loves perfectly and sinlessly. There's not a husband and wife in this room that can say, well, you know, I love my wife so perfectly and sinlessly. I think there was one time five years ago I failed to do that. But for the most part, no. Our our love is limited by our finiteness and our sinfulness so that we cannot love fully and faithfully as God loves us Uh, That is the principle by which we want to operate, but even understanding and being gripped by the love of God in its fullness, we have to be careful with language. Sometimes we speak in equivocal language, that that is, we use language, we use language in different ways according to the context. When I use the word empty and I'm referring to my truck, my truck is empty, I'm, I'm either meaning there's nothing in the back or there's nothing in the tank. But when I say I'm empty, I mean something entirely differently. We can, we can use language in different ways according to the context. There's a, there's a group of uh, people unreached people group in North Africa right now that is getting the Bible in their language for the very first time. They have no word in their language for saved. 
and they have no word in their language for lost. So the translators are trying to find an equivalent, and this is what they came up with. They know the contrast between living people and dead people. And so their translation for being saved is becoming a living person. And whoever's not a living person is a dead person. I think that's a graphic picture of the contrast between saved people and lost people. The, the way we use language when we talk about God, and this is so important to understand, is we use language analogically. We, we use words, the only words we have, but we use them about God in a way that reaches its limits. When we say that God is holy, and then we hear God say to us, what does he say to us? Be holy even as I am holy. Now that language has its limits because surely you don't understand that to mean be God. We can't. We are finite. We are limited. We're bound by sin and flesh and desires. But we use that language in terms of God being set apart, set above, so that we're set apart from the world and we're set above the world to bring the truth of God to the world. Or the word angry. The Bible says that God gets angry, but God is pure and perfect. And what evokes the anger of God is the sin of man, the sin of humans. We get angry, but our anger is different from God because our anger is not pure and perfect. When I'm angry, my anger is never pure and perfect. My anger is because somebody has said something or done something or acted in some way that offended me, that may have been a good thing to do from the perspective of God. Our, our language is very limited when we're talking about God, or we say that God is good. God is ultimate good. God is total good. God is perfectly good. God is eternally good. Or in our day, here's one of the really controversial points in our day among professing Christians, we say that God is just so that we as humans ought to pursue justice. Now, I don't say that we as humans should not pursue justice. But whenever we pursue justice, we are never pursuing it in the way that God pursues it. Because God's pursuit of justice is by the standard of his holiness. Our pursuit of justice is by the standard of what we perceive to be right and best for us. So we have to understand that when we're talking about God and we're using human language, which is the only language we have to use, that our language in itself is limited and, is, and God is far beyond, far greater far more than we can say. 
Nothing brings that home to us quite like the Trinity. It's the foundation for knowing God. When we say that God is one and God is three, this is what we mean. These words, I believe, are very critical. He is one in essence. He is three in expression, or he is one God in three persons. He's one in essence. The essence of God is that he's one. He's a unity. But he expresses himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Now, that's where we stand as believers because we believe that at the core of the Bible is the teaching of the Trinity. One God in three persons. One in essence, three in expression. Now, somebody's going to come to you and say, would you please explain that to me? What is your answer? I don't know. This is the ultimate mystery of the Christian faith, but it is the fundamental foundation of the Christian faith. Because I'm going to tell you, whatever explanation you use, and I've heard some doozies, whatever explanation you you use requires you to bring the holy, mighty, righteous, pure, and perfect God down to your level. Let God be God. And understand what we're saying when we say that God is one in essence, three in expression. So, go to Deuteronomy with me. We're going to go to two texts. One of them, maybe we'll get to most of it tonight. Deuteronomy 6, but as you're going to Deuteronomy 6, just keep turning the page and go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because Deuteronomy chapter 6 is God speaking through Moses to lay down the foundation for his relationship to his people and the relationship of his people to himself. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, I believe these are very critical verses for understanding God's covenant relationship with his people, his chosen people. Now listen to what God says here. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God. You are set apart for God. You belong to God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you. It is the word used consistently in the Bible for the doctrine of God's electing of his own, his choosing of his own. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and, in, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a, you see the next word, to a what? 
God does not change. God is faithful in raising up in every generation His covenant people, chosen and called out by Him, redeemed by His grace and mercy, and called into a relationship, a covenant relationship, where we show that we love Him, and we show that we love Him by keeping His commandments. And yet, verse 10, He repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Now let me tell you what is fundamental here. What is fundamental here is that God's choosing of his people, beginning with Abraham and moving forward, has nothing to do, nothing to do, capital N, capital O, capital T, capital H, capital I, capital N, capital G, nothing to do with us. One of the greatest mistakes you will make is, I belong to God because God looked down the corridors of time and he saw something good in me worth saving and he saved me. No, here is love. God saw nothing good in you. He saw the filthiness of Alright's sin. He saw where I was captured by my flesh. And God called me to himself and he saved me exclusively by his grace and mercy so that all praise goes to God. Now, when you do what I just said individually, that is a fatal flaw when you do it corporately. particularly as a nation. And you believe that God chose a nation based on their goodness and their nobility and their ethic and their morals or whatever else you want to add to the list? No. God chooses out of his sovereign grace and mercy and his love and those who are chosen who come to him because they're called and compelled to come to him, come to him, and these two things are essential to hold together. They're come to him because we fear him and we love him. We're drawn into this relationship where we stand in awe of this God. And I I believe you know that. I believe we all know that. On any given day, when you think about, even for a few seconds, that God loved you and saved you by his grace, does that overwhelm you? It should. And it should prompt you to fear him and to fall before him in gratitude for his grace. Now, look back up at uh, verse 6 before we go to chapter 6. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God. Now, there are two words that are there. They're both names for God. One is the name for God that is personal. The other is the name for God as the almighty, awesome, powerful God. Lord is personal. 
God is the awesome, majestic, powerful God. Now, I want you to get this image because you should never, ever, we should never, ever separate these two pictures of God. Now, if, 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 if you're like me, you like the picture of God as Lord, <laughs> personal, relational. You don't really like so much the picture of God, awesome, powerful, majestic. But he can't be one or the other. To be God, he is both. Now, here's the picture. God, through Moses, brought the children of Israel to the foot of Sinai to give them the law of God, Exodus 19. When they got there and they got before the mountain, what was the mountain doing? Yeah, they didn't stand back and say, now that's the most beautiful mountain I've ever seen in my life. No, it was on fire. Smoke billowing from the mountain. And the word they received was, don't come near this mountain because as soon as you touch the mountain, what's going to happen? You're going to die. That's God. That's the awesome Mighty, majestic God. So what does he do at that mountain? He comes down. And he makes himself known to Moses. As Lord. The same God. One God. God Almighty, awesome in power and majesty, and he comes down as Lord, and he makes himself known to Moses and to Aaron. He talks with them. He gives them his word that we know as the Ten Commandments. This is how we, we know God when we know that he has chosen us as his and he's called us to himself we know that he is God, and we never lose sight of that. But we know that he is Lord. And see, you and I know that much more intimately than they knew that on that day at Mount Sinai. Why? Huh? Yeah. But how, yeah, that's true. But how do we know? Because God, the almighty, awesome God, came down as Lord to Moses on the mountain. How far did Jesus come down? All the way. All the way. And because of that, through Jesus, we know God. We know God not only as the almighty, majestic, glorious God. We know God as the personal, loving, caring, saving, securing, redeeming, rescuing, and sanctifying God. Deuteronomy 6 is where we'll start next week. Deuteronomy 6 is God making himself known to his people. And he makes himself known as one God in three persons. I want you to see that in Deuteronomy 6. I want you to see it in John chapter 1. And I want you to see it in other places in Scripture.
You know, when we begin to understand something of who God is, the question that ought to stir us is not is not so much does God, uh, the question that ought to stir us is not so much do I know God. That's not the question. What is it? Does God know me? This massive, majestic, glorious God. And when he knows you and calls you and changes you, He not only knows you, he knows everything about you. And day by day provides for you in the midst of every situation of your life. Everything that you need to live for his glory and to live for his praise. This is a great God, a majestic God, a glorious God. And I just want to tell you, even at the end of this night, I want to tell you that I won't even come even remotely close to even describing the greatness and the grandeur of this God. We love you, God. We love you in the best way we know how. Most of us are stumbling around like well, I would like to pray that we're stumbling around like first and second graders, but I'm not so sure. We're stumbling around like little children trying to find their way in the presence of the greatest being we've ever had the privilege of being in the presence of. And that should, I guess, cause us to be concerned Except when you came to us in Jesus, you showed us how much you love children. Because children, when they come to you, they come innocently and dependently. Uh, dependently. They come with questions, they come with laughter, they come with love, they come with loyalty, they come with devotion. So God, we throughout the study, come to you as children. And we want to know who you are. And we know that you tell us in your word who you are. So help us to stay close to what you speak to us in your word and not ever be tempted. And even if we are tempted, particularly me as a teacher, if I'm tempted to go outside your word, I pray that you would rein me back in so that all that we say about who you are, we can document clearly in your word. Help us to live this week in the glory and beauty of such a great one as you that looks down upon us from your heaven and loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.